everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and I'm delighted to have with us today for our emergency response team and also our educators and everyone else who's watching, delighted to have Dr. Matt Dua, who is the Wellbeing Coordinator at Lake Forest High School and also the author of two books and one of them about to come out soon, and he's going to share with us some of his details on that too. So welcome. Good to see you, Matt. Craig, thanks for having me. I'd love for you to tell us what you do in your current role at the high school, and then we can move into your book and mindfulness and things like that. For sure. Um, I'm the well-being coordinator at Lake Forest High School, as you just said, and the role has many facets to it, but most broadly stated, I address the uh, total well-being needs of students and staff. And uh, Lake Forest High School is a school in a very affluent community. And so as a result of that, there's a lot of pressure to succeed on both teachers and students. It's kind of a high stakes environment. And so anxiety is really omnipresent and it, it gnaws away at the well-being of, of the young adults as well as, as the faculty. And so one of the main channels for intervention that I've leveraged in the last five, six years has been the research-based practice of mindfulness and using mindfulness as a tool to build self-awareness and uh, more skillful um, stress management skills. Those have really been the two kind of emotional intelligence competencies that I've focused on is heightening self-awareness because all Emotional intelligence is nested within the ability just to know in real time, what am I actually feeling? And, and having that awareness and then knowing how to skillfully respond to self-regulate. What do I need to do as a result of how I'm feeling? And for most of us, I always say this to students and colleagues, for most of us, our worst habits are unskillful attempts to manage or, or regulate our own stress. And so uh, the work that I do is, uh, again, multifaceted um, mindfulness interventions in the classroom, mindfulness time outside of class, uh, self-care seminars for faculty. Um, I help develop and implement and teach a course called Wellness for Life that all incoming students now take when they come into the school. And it really uh, focuses, what's really unique about it is that the curriculum is basically um, a social, emotional, learning intensive course where kids are hitting all these skills that we want to develop in terms of emotional intelligence. Um, and it's a year long course. Um, I'm trying to think of, uh, I've also done courses, uh, professional development courses for staff. Um, Basically, you name it, <laughs> I've tried it. <laughs> I noticed that you just said emotional intelligence, and that's what I was thinking when you first started talking. So can you just expand on maybe the differences, similarities, and maybe it's a process. Can you tell us about that? Uh, about what emotional intelligence is? Yeah, you mentioned emotional intelligence just then, and when you were saying being aware of your own feelings your own emotions, that's, that's to me is emotional intelligence. So how do you move on from recognizing how you're feeling to then managing that in an ongoing proactive way? That's a, that's a phenomenal question. So uh, 
you, you cannot um, successfully or skillfully manage what you're not aware of. And so mindfulness is the practice of learning to pay non-judgmental and non-reactive attention to what it is you're experiencing in real time. And so one of the things I talk about uh, with students is the stress bucket. On a scale of one to 10, how full is your bucket? And I have students do this all the time where I'll start class and I'll just say, let's take a moment, 30 seconds. You can put a hand on your chest, a hand on your stomach, close your mouth, breathe through your nose. If you want and you feel more comfortable, close your eyes and simply just drop into your breathing. What is your breath and and what is your body telling you about what you're experiencing right now in this moment? And on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you are crawling out of your skin anxious and one being you're, you're about to start drooling on yourself because you're going to fall asleep. <laughs> Where are you on this continuum, right? And um, they, they will identify a number. Let's say uh, the kid says, I'm a six, okay? Then I'll say, how is it that you know you're a six? What is it that your breath is telling you? What is it that your body is telling you? for you to evaluate yourself at a six. Well, I noticed that uh, I have energy and I'm mostly settled, but I have this slight tightness in my chest that is not just calm energy, it's a little slightly anxious. Okay, well, that's, that's self-awareness. You're, uh, that's somatic awareness. You're aware, aware of your body in, in real time of what it's telling you. And so then I'll pose the question, is, is that a problem? Is that a problem that you're at a six? And it's like, no, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. Well, what if it's a seven or an eight? Is it, is it a problem then? Well, maybe, yeah, because then it's hard for me to focus. Okay, well, then what might you do? What strategy do you have to employ that can allow you to come back into that area of what we – I? Five on the one to 10 scale is what the research describes as clear, focused, calm. That's kind of where we want to be to do the the meaningful work uh, of day-to-day life where we have enough energy to pay attention, but we don't have so much energy that we're kind of eating ourselves (laughs) with with anxiety. So it's that real, it's really the balance between um, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system, the the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And that we're, when we're at a five, we're in what's called the um, window of tolerance, where we're most able to effectively engage with our environment, right? And so that's where we want to be. And too often, we habitually find ourselves too high for some people. In modern society, really, the problem is, is that too many of us are too high. But some people do, in fact, have um, what's called uh, hypoarousal, which is their affect is, is consistently too low. And this is something that would be analogous to like depressive disorders, where, where people are, are just constantly dialed down too much and they need something to come up. So I'm, I'm getting off into other things there, but 
uh, to answer your question, it's recognizing what am I feeling? How do I know that I'm feeling it? What is my body? What are my body and breath telling me in real time? Is this a problem? Uh, if it is, what, what do I need to do? What techniques do I have at my disposal to self-regulate and bring myself back into that kind of window or channel of, of optimal stress tolerance? And uh, is that a conscious choice, right? Am I consciously making a choice to downshift or am I unconsciously and reactively seeking the lowest common denominator behavior to shift myself back into a better state temporarily. And we all know that um, that's really the basis of, of maladaptive behaviors like, like addiction. Um, and I could go off on, on some really disturbing statistics here in the United States about the ultimate consequences of that. Um, the ultimate consequences of not being self-aware and not being able to, to self-regulate skillfully. So I'm thinking as, as we talked about before I started recording, there's two major audiences for, for our podcast. There are the people who work in the oil and gas industry, and then there are the educators predominantly in Southeast Asia and in, in Nepal and Kathmandu. So there's a number of stresses for educators and oil and gas people on any day of the week. But now we have COVID, uncertain regulations, uh, price of oil has gone down, um, people having to work from home in schools, not being able to charge for online learning. Um, there's all these other stresses that didn't exist in normal life. And when we hit a crisis, that's not really the time to learn mindfulness. We should have been learning it beforehand and putting some practices <laughs> in place, I would imagine, so that we can then bring into play those strategies. So even now, while we're in the middle of many stresses and challenges, what are some things that people could be doing now in either industry or other industries to just prepare themselves for their day? This is a phenomenal question. Research suggests there are two main ways we can uh, face or deal with stress. One is to increase our tolerance for stress. And the second is to consciously learn how to control the calming response. So let's start with, with number one. How do we increase our tolerance for stress? Well, this is just self-care 101, right? Think of it as a self-care bank account. If on a daily basis you're investing money or assets, resources into your self-care account, you're, you're building um, – you're building resources, you're building wealth, so to speak, so that when you have to pay out throughout the day, a stressor comes up, your account has enough money to accommodate it. And so one thing we know is that people are most ill-equipped to deal with stress when they're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Um, that's the acronym for that is HALT, right? And so if we can take care of ourselves in such a way that our, our self-care account is always in the positive, then we'll just naturally be able to deal with, with stress more easily. I mean, we know this going to back to the other analogy of, of the stress bucket. If your bucket's always at an eight or a nine, and then a slight stressor comes in, 
that really shouldn't be a big deal. But if you're an eight or a nine, that means your bucket's quickly overflowing and you're in an anxiety tailspin at that point. And then you're probably engaging in maladaptive behaviors to self-regulate. But if your bucket is consistently at like a four, a five, or a six, and a stressor comes in, you have enough space to accommodate that stressor. So how do you do that? What's an actual practice? Research suggests really in the last five years, um, there's been a ton of research by the National Institute of Health here in the United States on um, chronobiology or circadian rhythm. And one of the things we can do to really just make sure our entire system is functioning optimally is to rise and fall with the sun. When you wake up in the morning within 30 minutes, ideally close to sunrise, you want to get outside and get natural light on your eyes. And even on a cloudy day, uh, when you have the least exposure, the time of year where you have the least amount of sunlight, within 10 minutes, you can give a pulse, a, uh, a, a photon pulse, basically, that allows your body to sync its circadian rhythm. Um, I, can, I can go into all the, the nuts and bolts and details of, of how this works if you want, um, or I can just give the, the general principles. But basically, what research suggests and has found is that with depression and anxiety, people get what's called a late cortisol pulse. And cortisol is a stress hormone. And so later in the day, they get this surge of this stress hormone, which is why um, anxiety and depression are associated with the inability to fall asleep because people become what's tired and wired. We call it tired and wired. You're very tired, but you're so anxious, you can't, you can't fall asleep. Mm. And so the, the opposite of that is that melatonin and cortisol have an inverse relationship. So as, as cortisol is ri rising, melatonin, which is the sleep hormone that drives sleep hunger and makes you want to fall asleep, um, as a cortisol goes up, melatonin goes down. And as melatonin goes up, cortisol goes down. And in a healthy individual, when you wake up in the morning, you have your cortisol pulse when you wake up. It peaks, right? And this makes sense because when you're, you're waking up, you should, should feel a little bit of a surge of anxiety and restlessness and agitation to move, to get out into the world, to interact with your environment to secure resources for your survival. And around midday, as the light shifts, and you have these uh, melanopsin ganglion cells in your eyes, which are always aware of the photons in your environment and the chromatic shifts in the sky, totally unconsciously. You don't have to pay any attention to this. And so as the light is shifting throughout the day, so, is your, so are your cortisol levels going down and then your, uh, your um, melatonin starts climbing. And so if you're living in harmony with light, um, you should get the peak of your melatonin pulse 16 hours before the first light pulse, or 16 hours after the first light pulse on your eyes. And we know um, Last five years, they've done some beautiful studies on this, and we just know now that a dysregulated circadian rhythm creates chronic inflammation within the body. And that chronic inflammation 
is associated with depression, um, mental disorders, physical disorders, et cetera, and basically just, in short, a lower tolerance to stress. And so it's really important. The, the most basic recommendations are wake up around sunrise is best, but definitely before 9 a.m. After 9 a.m., you enter a circadian dead zone where you really can't uh, set your clock. Um, and so get outside. If it's a sunny day and the sun is out, within two minutes, you'll get that light pulse, that photon energy on your eyes, and it's, it's set. And that will determine your hunger throughout the day, when you're going to get sleepy, all those things. Um, and then ideally around sunset, you would also get light because that chromatic shift. So in the morning, the chromatic shift from uh, blue light to yellow light signals that this is the beginning of the day. And then around sunrise, the chromatic shift from yellow light to blue light uh, shifts that you're, you're going to sleep um, or that you're starting the, the, the sleep uh, cycle. And then this one's really important. From about 11 p.m. to 4 a.m., minimize any kind of light on your eyes. And it's really people being up late on their phones and on their devices or just with any kind of bright light. They initially thought that blue light specifically, artificial blue light, was the culprit. And now they know that it's actually the brightness of the light more so than it is blue light. So people who are wearing orange blue blocking glasses at night and looking at their devices, um, that probably doesn't work if the light is bright. Um, and, and why this is so important to um, avoid light during this time is because light during 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. activates a part of your brain called the habenulum, which activates these pro-depressive circuits in your brain. And it's almost like nature's way of, of punishing you for being awake and active when you shouldn't be awake and active. It's like a, a, um, uh, we talk about carrots and sticks with motivation. <laughs> it's almost like nature with a stick showing you that when you wake up, you feel groggy, you don't feel well, your, your ability to learn is impacted, your ability to make good decisions is impacted, etc. So I have students and colleagues, um, I have sheets and stuff that sets up some of these protocols and just have them for a week. Pay close attention to uh, what are your sleep-wake cycles. And a really cool study from the University of Colorado shows that within two days of proper circadian viewing, you can essentially reset your circadian cycle. So it doesn't take... Go it's ahead. A quick fix. Two days. Yeah, quick it, fix. it it regulates itself very quickly, and and um, it takes about the, the same amount of time to dysregulate it. So if you have a very balanced, healthy circadian rhythm, it it'll take two or three days of waking up late, staying up late, etc., to to really dysregulate it. One one night won't completely throw it off. But if you're doing that night after night after night, then, then you're running into some issues. Um, so that's, that's the most basic consideration. Then there's other things like what you eat, exercising. I mean, exercising, the research on exercise 
is so phenomenal that if you could, if you could put into a pill all the benefits of exercise, people would pay the most exceptional sums of money for that pill. And yet all you have to do is just commit to moving your body for a period of time every day. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's such a no brainer. So there's, there's diet, there's exercise, and then there's meaningful social connection. And this is something that's really deteriorating and eroding in, in modern mm. social media based culture yeah. is we're, we're more virtually connected, but people are complaining more and more that they feel a sense of interpersonal emptiness that they don't, that they're connected virtually to all these people, but they don't actually have meaningful, substantial, enduring relationships with enough people. Mm. Um, and so, uh, Social, meaningful social connection is, is actually just um, such a powerful tool for our well-being and, and stress management. And I, ironically or paradoxically, um, this is a time where we're so stressed because we have an imminent threat to our health and well-being, which is COVID-19. And one of the things we can do when we're stressed is meaningfully connect with others. That's a natural impulse. And yet here we are with a stressor and one of our main outlets to deal with that stress is taken away from us because we have to distance ourselves mm. from people. So you get this, uh, we're doubly stressed as a result. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm throwing a ton at you. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. So this halt, which is the hunger... Um, is it anger? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Lonely, tired. Okay. And that's number one, the incre increased tolerance for stress. Yeah. And what was the number two? And number two was learn to consciously control the calming response. And what this means is how do you interact with your nervous system in real time? And the thing, the thing about stress is, Again, let's go back to the stress bucket. If you notice that the stress bucket levels are rising and you're, you're rising from a four to a six, you might be able to employ conceptual tools. You might be able to um, notice maybe your self-talk is negative and just tell yourself like, oh, it's gonna be okay or uh, remind yourself to calm down or whatever. But at some point, as your stress bucket keeps going up, it's going to hit a point where the actual stress response is initiated. And once the neural circuitry of stress starts, it's like dominoes falling. Once you get that norepinephrine or adrenaline in your system, you have to be able to do something with it, right? Um, and so research suggests there's really just three ways we can consciously interface with our nervous system and our stress response in real time, vision, movement, and breathing. Those are the three kind of windows into our nervous system where we can build conscious skill to learn to calm ourselves down once we recognize that the wheels are falling off the bus, so to speak, <laughs> and we're losing it. <laughs> And I, I can, um, if you want, I can uh, talk a little bit about 
each one and what that might look like? Yeah, I think that would be great. Because I think what you've said beforehand about increasing your tolerance for stress is what you do as a day-to-day practice to build up that tolerance. And then within the moment, when there are stressful situations, we can employ these three, vision, movement, and breathing. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, please tell us. that, That the best strategy is to be ahead of stress, right? So that was number one, increase your tolerance to stress. But but life is, life is inherently stressful, and no matter how prepared we are when we show up to life, there's always a, a curveball, and there, there's always a moment where uh, we're not prepared, or, or we get too much too fast, right? Timing and dose of stress is everything. Our readiness, and then the timing and dose of stress. And, and so now we're, we find ourselves in a moment where all our uh, circadian viewing and all those things isn't enough to put us in that sweet spot. And so now we actually have to deal with the stress in real time. So first, vision. A lot of research coming out of the Huberman lab at Stanford in the last three years showing how vision drives our internal state. How we look at the world literally with our eyes is mirrored with how we look at the world conceptually. So if your eyes are narrowed and focused, right, your cognition is narrowed and focused. What your eyes do is what your brain is doing. (laughs) And so when your eyes are dialed out into panoramic vision and you're outside looking at a horizon and you feel calm and your parasympathetic nervous system is activated, and you feel like you have perspective on your life and you see the big picture, that's because your eyes are doing that. Try to do that same thing. Try to engender that same feeling by picking up a phone, holding it in front of your face and staring at information on your phone, right? You don't have that blissful, calm feeling when you're doing that, right? So your eyes are pivotal in driving your internal state. And, and so really we have two ways of um, kind of looking at the world. Vergence eye movements or foveal vision. This is where our eyes have to focus on a specific point in space. And when we look at the world in this way, that is inherently stressful, right? Because it's increasing vigilance in the brain. We've developed this ability to locate things specifically in space in our visual field. And we do that for one of two reasons. We see it as a novelty that's an opportunity for survival, whether it's food, a mate, shelter, something, or it's a threat. In either case, when your eyes narrow and you go into a virgin's eye movement and you're looking at one thing in your visual field, your brain's level of vigilance goes up. And what that means is that stress goes up, right? Um, norepinephrine, which is adrenaline in the brain, goes up because you need, you're go- it's telling your body you're going to need to act on what you're focusing on. So the reason I bring this up is how much of our modern life is, is oriented around having our eyes on a screen where we're focusing all day on a single point. And so what we're doing is we're filling that stress bucket up all day, very slowly. And we don't even realize it. (laughs) 
And it's because we're staring at devices. And now that many of us are uh, quarantined because of COVID-19, we're spending even more time on devices because this is how we continue to interact with, with the world. And so uh, I, I tell students and colleagues all the time, be very conscious of how long your eyes are in a virgin's eye gaze at any given point, because you can be unknowingly uh, agitating yourself, making yourself more stressed out. So don't go more than an hour, take a break, go outside, view a visual horizon, allow your eyes to expand um, because that calms your, your nervous system down. If you don't have an immediate um, visual horizon where you can see um, horizontally, or with depth at a distance, what you can do a basic exercise is just to sit here right now in a room and open your peripheral vision. Try to see everything in your visual field at once, including your own body. And when you do that, you have to soften the, your gaze. You can't focus and you have to bring in the whole visual field. Well, when you do that, you're inducing the parasympathetic nervous system. So, so one, of the, one of the things we can do to stress someone out, one of the easiest ways to stress someone out is to put them consistently in a room with no visual horizon. It's very stressful. Like a classroom. Like a classroom. <laughs> and, and so, um, so throughout the day, you want to take eye breaks. And if you notice that you're getting stressed, and you're in a stressful state, uh, what's going to tend to happen as you get stressed is your visual gaze will narrow. So you're going to want to override that unconscious instinctive tendency. And what you can do, and this leads us to the second strategy, is go outside and walk and move. And because when you're walking outside, one, you have access to larger horizons and more visual depth. But two, you create what's called optic flow. And that is the appearance of the world moving past you as you walk. And what this does, uh, there's been some fascinating research, this downregulates the amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of the brain that's the threat detection center. It, it sends out um, basically lower brain emotions like stress responses. And so when you go out and you walk and you create optic flow, you're basically downregulating your amygdala. And this is because at a very base level in your cognition, uh, when you're moving in space in your visual field, you're telling your body in stress that you're acting on the stressor. And so then it knows it no longer needs to alert you to the stress because you're taking care of it. That's the hypothesis. Um, and so getting outside, walking, horizons, visual distance, and optic flow all shut your nervous system down. Um, and, then, and then movement in general, if you have stress hormones like um, norepinephrine, cortisol pumping through your system, um, the, the whole stress response is fundamentally designed to agitate you into movement. So when you get stressed out, it's basically your body redirecting 
all your primary metabolic resources immediately to the largest muscles of the body. Well, why? Because it wants you to (laughs) escape. But well, escape or fight. But in either case, you're going to have to use your largest muscles. Mm -hmm. So this is ancient. I mean, this is just juiced into our DNA. And so if you don't move, you're not initiating the feedback circuit to your brain, which is the threat detection center that says, hey, I'm, I'm dealing with this. I'm doing something. And so it stops sending the impulse to create these stress hormones. And then the lingering hormones that are within your body, you're using them up as you move. So movement is just, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's so obvious why that is an invaluable tool um, for immediate stress management. And then the last, and this is what my, my book that's going to be coming out this year um, is on is breathing. And breathing is just the most beautiful stress management tool because we are always already breathing. We're breathing 20 to 30,000 times a day. We're never at a distance from our breath. It's something that we're, um, it, there's, no, there's no side effects, Right. And we are the only things on the planet that can consciously control our breathing to change our internal state, Mm. right? So it's, it's an autonomic function, meaning it's happening automatically all the time. But I can consciously say, Craig, I want you to breathe through your nose and I want you to breathe more slowly. And suddenly your brain has this wonderful ability to say, oh, I know how to do that. And now you're breathing more slowly. And Stanford University, about three summers ago, actually identified the part of the brain, this link between the emotional arousal centers of the brain and the respiration centers of the brain, showing it's a shared pathway of neurons, showing what we have long intuited And that is that emotion and respiration are deeply connected. And so now we know actually the part of the brain where this is happening. And what this means is that at every moment, your level of emotional arousal is reflected in your breathing. Is your breathing light? Is your breathing slow? Is your breathing deep? Or maybe your breathing is heavy and not light. Maybe it's fast and not slow, and maybe it's shallow and not deep. And so you can use those three descriptions as the breath's way of communicating where you are on that stress bucket, right? If your breathing is heavy, fast, and shallow, you're on the upper end of that that stress bucket. If your breathing is light, slow, and deep, now you're on that lower half of the bucket. And if you think of that bucket as the nervous, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system, that the upper half of the bucket is, is the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, stress. And then the lower half of the bucket is the parasympathetic, rest, calm, digest. And so um, breathing is this real-time status report on your level of, of stress. And the flip side of that is that then you can consciously grab a hold of your breathing and manipulate it to work backwards to control the emotional state. 
And um, there are all sorts of uh, basic breathing considerations that you can take to immediately uh, start changing your emotional state. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about those if you're interested. What I'd, what I'd love to do, just, just because of time, and I know that people's attention spans are much shorter these days, <laughs> <laughs> what I'd love for you to do is to actually tell us the name of your book that's going to come out so that people can keep an eye out for your book that's going to come out. So what's the name of your book? It's the Mindful Breathing Workbook for Teens. So it takes a lot of this breathing research uh, and uses it as a practical real-time guide for helping young adults in a school setting um, help regulate their, their stress via breathing. What I'd love to do, because I've just so appreciated your time, and it's, it's funny when you identify something, you can change, you automatically change something when people identify it. So I'm actually changing my breathing while you're talking about it. So it's having that impact just because I'm noticing it. Um, I'd love to make sure that people can read what you have, whether it's your book, your blog, your articles, your LinkedIn, whatever you've got. So I want everyone to know that I'm going to put those links in the description with the video that goes with us on YouTube and your LinkedIn as well, if that's okay. Um, that's is great. There, is there something that you'd like to point people to directly that they should be looking for to get hold of you or find your information? Um, my website is mattdewar.com. It's currently being uh, updated, but the, the older version is, is still online. And then my LinkedIn, which is um, Matt Dewar, EDD, or EDD. Um, and then Instagram is uh, at Dr. Matt Dewar. And on Instagram, I'll, I'll post, um, I usually post the same videos on LinkedIn, but I'll post just basic self-care tips and breathing tips and stuff like that. So... Matt, I really yeah. want to thank you for your time. And I know you, you're up early this morning and giving me your time of being up early and sharing your wisdom with us as well. And I do hope that people can put into practice some of the principles that you've said and that they seek out your book as well when it's published. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Craig.